give the girls ratatatatata when we go out campaigning and they give us ratatatatata and so we are not complaining for years and years we battled every night they'll pension us when we are too old to fight we are the boudoir brigadiers with our ratatatatatata Hello and welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1931, and Jonathan McChris joins us to discuss The Smiling Lieutenant. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hello, everyone. We're here with Jonathan Macris. Jonathan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Jonathan Macris. I'm a PhD candidate um, at the University of California, Berkeley I'm in the film department. I'm also a writer. I occasionally work as a translator and I also program films around the Bay from time to time. Wonderful. Thanks for hopping on. We're at the point now when I get to stop asking people why they want a specific film because it's kind of self-explanatory. But we're here to talk about The Smiling Lieutenant, the 1931 romantic comedy musical, although it's it's, it's quite a complex one, starring Maurice Chevalier, most notably, but also this is our first film with Claudette Colbert and very notably Miriam Hopkins in this retrospective. There's so many places we could start, but I think we can probably get into this with a little introduction about a man named Maurice. I mean, our previous episode with Jennifer, we discussed him from a musical point of view, but to me, this is almost the first Maurice Chevalier movie of this retrospective in that he's finally that raconteur that we love. He is breaking the fourth wall. He's implicating us. He's doing the thing that Ossie Oswalda did silently, but with sound, where we are complicit in his antics. Maurice, who is this wacky Frenchman with a straw hat? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, there's a part of me that's almost sort of embarrassed about the fact that I, I really do love Chevalier as a performer. I and mean, I always have. I've always been so attracted to him. And I think this this film in particular was the one that really sort of revived my interest in, in Lubitsch. I had seen a number of his films earlier. And I think the one previously that had really stood out to me was Heaven Can Wait. But watching Smiling Lieutenant in my early 20s really sort of revived a strong interest in Lubitsch. And a lot of it owes to Chevalier. And he was a really sort of interesting, his sort of trajectory into Hollywood became kind of interesting. So he begins, as you would probably expect, in the musical tradition. And in particular, there's a performer known in France, but not really like a crossover hit. There's a woman named Mistinguette, who was a really famous performer in France in 1900s and then also in the early 1910s. And she had some, she made some attempts to work in the film industry, but they weren't super successful. The only film role of hers that's particularly notable that would be like recognizable to American audiences would be she has like a brief role in Julian de Vivier's film Pepe Lamoco very briefly. But otherwise, she didn't really have much success in in film. But in many ways, her star celebrity in France in the 1910s is what Chevalier in his 20s really kind of like latched on to. They were romantically involved for a little while. And that sort of like catapults him into stardom in France. He had made a couple of films with a French director, Henri Diamant Berger. And what was sort of nice, a couple of years ago, Henri, the, the streaming service for the Cinémathèque Française, they put together this compilation 
of like six or so of the films that they shot together. And they're kind of interesting because Chevalier, like, and you already mentioned this, like he is known as like a singer and he's really sort of like his voice is so important to his performance style. And so it's kind of interesting seeing him cast in these silent films. And he mostly is sort of playing a sort of slapstick role. He is sort of a romantic figure in them as well. But it's mostly like genre traditions of slapstick in particular. And there's one film, Jim Boxer, which is like a boxing film that's sort of like, you know, Keaton in Battling Butlers or or Chaplin in City Lights or Jacques Tati in Watch Your Left. And, you know, sort of like this classic, like amateur boxer kind of a film. So it's very unusual compared to the image that we later develop of Chevalier in the in the sound era. But um he really sort of caught the attention of Hollywood in the late 20s when the Fairbanks, so Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford recommended him to Thalberg. And they said, you know, you need to hire this guy. And Thalberg goes to meet Chevalier. But of course, like Thalberg is like not someone to, he's not someone who's like spending a lot of money. So they're unable to work out a deal. And later, Jesse Lasky from Paramount comes and he's the one who ultimately is able to book Maurice to come over to the US and, and make some films over there. I mean, of course, very quickly, he becomes like, one of the studio's biggest stars and most sort of recognizable figures. And he ends up working for Paramount for a few years, but eventually does go to MGM in 34. And then that's where he makes Mary Widow with Lubitsch when they, they move over there. Yeah, so that's sort of his like early trajectory into Hollywood. I mean, shortly after The Merry Widow, he basically dropped out of Hollywood and his later life is probably the source of a lot of in hindsight controversy about him, <laughs> you know, yeah. where I mean, that story yeah. is probably for another day. But oof. and then he comes back with, you know, yeah. films like Billy Wilder's Love in the Afternoon and Gigi. And it, it's been interesting because one of the I think maybe the single most defining tell that someone is new to Lubitsch or on the other hand, very familiar with Lubitsch is wh how what they think of Maurice. <laughs> because yep. he's easily The Merry Widow is one of my favorite movies ever and when I show that to folks the response is always I loved it Maurice, what an odd figure. And at this point in my kind of, you know, appreciation of Lupich, and this is the pattern I've known among a lot of people who are more familiar with all of his work, it's that, like, he might be my single favorite actor in any of his movies at this point. I mean, he, I cannot, I can't, like, especially after seeing something like Monte Carlo, which I think is, is a huge gaping void where Maurice's charisma should be, <laughs> that his value to these musicals cannot be overstated. He is this incredible figure that, in this film, somehow both the most cartoonish person you ever saw he looks like someone who has been drawn. And yet we are still able to take him seriously as a frankly sexual figure. He is magnetic. He is charismatic. He is relatable, despite being, for all intents and purposes, a Bugs Bunny figure. Yeah, I think it's right. And like even in those later films you mentioned, like Gigi or, or Love in the Afternoon, I mean, he remains electric even in the face of these other like ensemble performances or even in, in his other films at Paramount at the time, too. Like a film like The Big Pond in 1930 is by all intents and purposes, not a really effective film. It's not really an effective crew. There's still it's like a very early sound film. So it's kind of rough, but it remains like he is so good. And his songs in, in that film in particular are, are really good. But same with with, I mean, the other performance that's like especially notable that's worth bringing up is Ruben Mullian's Love Me Tonight, which yes. is such an electric film. There was a time in my life, in the same time that I was sort of discovering these other Lubitsch films, I used to watch like the opening 10 minutes from that film sort of over and over. And like I sort of would stop after the end of the Isn't It Romantic song and sort of would just watch mm -hmm. that opening over and over because it, it's so stunning, both what Mullian is doing in, in that film. He was recently the subject of retrospective at Richovato earlier this year, which was like fantastic. 
fantastic to see. But yeah, so what Mamoulian's doing that film is fantastic, but also what Chevalier brings to it is really incredible and so, so electric. And I mean, I, I can say that I'm one of the many people who, for whom Isn't It Romantic was like a keying in moment to these early sound musicals. Aha, okay, here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a bunch of artists building the form in front of our eyes and therefore having the freedom to do something as bonkers. This is Isn't It Romantic? Yeah. And, you know, The Smiling Lieutenant, I'd actually say, as far as the musicals go, very conservative in how it stages the numbers compared to even something like The Love Parade. But one kind of little bit of context I think is important here is that the production of this film wasn't exactly exactly that happy. Chevalier, uh, to start with, had recently lost his mother. And apparently he was, you know, as, as a result, I saw him written, I have a note here that in one book, he's described as a big sourpuss the entire time, which I mean, yeah, I can relate. And, you know, meanwhile, Claudette Colbert and Miriam Hopkins were both wanted to be shot in the same side of their face. Claudette Colbert, you know, is famous for only wanting to be shot on her right side. And Hopkins, apparently that applies too. And how do you stage a two shot with two of them? There's a paradox there. And, uh, and so this production was a little fraught which I can actually, to get back to Maurice, I can see a bit of that in his performance where he later called his performance in this mechanical. I can see that where, you know, he raises his eyebrows in a way that I can feel the decision <laughs> in a way that I don't see in something like even One Hour With You or Love Me Tonight or especially The Merry Widow, where, where I, which I think is my favorite of his performances. Yeah. The other thing to mention, too, is in this period, he's also going through a divorce from his first wife, uh, Yvonne Vallet, who was another actress he had met in, in France and had been with for a while, but their marriage was also breaking up at this time too. So yeah, definitely like an unhappy period for him. But I reread James Harvey's romantic comedy in Hollywood, which is one of the sort of standard bearing studies of romantic comedies. And I I was surprised to to find in there because I had forgotten that Harvey really is really harsh about this film. I mean, I think this is the of all of the the Lubitsch musical comedies from this sort of early period, this is the one he writes about the the most disparagingly, which I am also sort of surprised Mm -hmm. by because I I think that, you know, it is like a really interesting film. I do think you're right, though, that there is a dimension to which it's a little bit more static. It's not as there is some like big sort of gestural camera movement. But I think especially the elements that we tend to associate with with Lubitsch are here, but maybe to a lesser extent. So, for example, the takes tend to be much longer, I think, in in general. Um, Like I'm thinking about the opening two shot between Charles Ruggles and who's also fantastic in this, I should say. So good and worth. This is our first Ruggles appearance. Yeah, he's and he's so good and like the whole you know he's one of my my favorite sort of you know bit players in, in 30s Hollywood but but the scene between him and Chevalier on the on the bed you know that's sort of a long take and and there's sort of a number of these two shots that go on much longer than I think you know you'll see even a year later in um, One Hour With You where the decoupage is much quicker and sort of mm-hmm. and that seems to be sort of like essential in many ways to, to Lubitsch's style so it's definitely true that there is something that's slightly slower the fact that he's directly addressing the audience and there's this kind of presentational style. But all of that's also married to this other dimension to Lubitsch that's really subversive in how he uses dialogue and sound in this film, which I think is, to me, like the most impressive version of this. Like another film maybe we could compare it to and how it uses sound would be like Ninochka, mm. where it's kind of doing something similar about like the difference between different kinds of languages and, and performances in that film. But yeah, I think what he he does here is really, is, is different from his other films, but nonetheless still really 
really impressive and, and subversive in its own right. Comparing this to either the films made before it or after it when separated by a year is fascinating to me because listeners to this podcast have heard me probably three or four times chastise myself for using the word transitional in a film. But this kind of is a transitional film. It feels between his early sound works in 29 and 30, that being Love Parade in Monte Carlo, and his, you know, peak Lubitsch of 32, one of his great years where he made three films, at least two of which I think are spectacular, but all three quite something, where this film feels like an exact midway point between the relative, we're still working through this, but I'm still better than anyone else doing it in 1929 of The Love Parade, and the complete comfort of his 32 films, those being Trouble in Paradise, We're an Hour with You, and, and Broken Lullaby, where all three of those films, especially Trouble in Paradise, feel completely at ease with how do we make the medium of sound film work for us. I should say direct sound recorded film <laughs> work for us. I got to be careful with my wording because technically, you know, Eternal loves a sound film. <laughs> it just isn't direct recorded. But in this film, it's not a quantum leap from like Monte Carlo where he's already experimenting with tracking shots and stuff, but the fluidity and the expressiveness. And you mentioned the way with dialogue and languages and especially the scene where halfway through the film, you have the kind of centerpiece musical number, which is I Like Him, where we cut between Maurice Chevalier and Claudette Colbert, Nikki and Francie. It's a musical number where they're just belting their love at one another. Not just their love, but their amorousness, right? I want to have sex with you. Oh, that's great. I do too. It belted in the beautiful singing voices. And then it cuts to Anna, who in a beautifully production designed little parlor of a, in a palace is, you know, in a very stately girlish way saying, I like him as a, you know, teenager might. I love you and I hate you. My darling, what have I done? And the way that those two scenes cut and the way that the camera kind of moves in a flowing way between Colbert and Chevalier versus the way that it just sticks in a presentational way on Hopkins shows to me a level of sophistication in the use of just basic camera work and a combination between that and singing styles that feels to me a notable step from Monte Carlo and Love Parade. And one thing I'll, I'll note about this as well that maybe does, I think, point to there is an aspect to it that is transitional. So it's definitely still what we might call like a hybrid film in the sense that there are there are moments that are clearly shot without sound. Like, for example, a lot of the transitions, the, begin, mm -hmm. like the very beginning and also the very ending are clearly shot without sound. But the rest of it is, as you mentioned, is sort of direct sound. The other thing I, I found this actually tremendously surprising when I was doing a little bit of, of research on this. So there's a, a great volume on Lubitsch that's published by Kaidu Cinema, and it's edited by uh, Jean Marbani and uh, Bernard Eisenschitz. And they, they mostly are sort of repurposing an old issue, I think from 1967, I think, where there had just been a, a big Lubitsch retrospective. Incidentally, The Smiling Lieutenant was not part of this retrospective, which I'm very sad about, because it means that there's basically no writing on it from that period and from any of like the great critics of, of that period. But in any case, in this volume, at the end, they include this filmography where they have a lot of notes about you know all the different films. And they mention 
in the notes for this film, and they, they say this for a number of the films from this period, but they mentioned in the notes for Smiling Lieutenants that there is a silent version of the film that was shot, mm. um, which I, that surprises me. I don't know if that to be true, but it is interesting that they note that. I don't know if it would have been shot, but at least edited, where oftentimes what they'll do is they'll just cut down the dialogue scenes drastically, introduce intertitles, and then you know mm. completely re-edit mm-hmm. the existing footage into a version that quote-unquote works for silent cinema, even if they hadn't actually shot anything new, but I, maybe they also shot a silent one. Well, they also shot a French language version of it too, which that would sort of make sense, especially if you're bringing in Chevalier. And they unfortunately don't give any details for this film who the other performers are. And on some of the other films, they mention like, here are the other performers playing these roles as well. But that's also kind of interesting. And I, I, I would love to see what that looks like. Fortunately, I, I don't really know anything much more about it. But but it's also in this period where Hollywood is still figuring out, like, how do we, how do, we do this? How do we incorporate, you know, sort of an international audiences. An interesting side note, I have seen the French version of The Merry Widow, at least. And oh, interesting. Fascinating, because Maurice and Jeanette still play the leads, but almost the entire supporting mm-hmm. cast is swapped out with French character actors. And the guy they get to play, the ambassador replacing Edward Everett Horton, is a deci- decisive trade down. But everyone seems mm-hmm. to do pretty well. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And there's new shots, and there's a few more indications that Maxime's is indeed a bordello, uh, you know, because I guess the French could take it. But yes, no, it's uh, all these very interesting things where, you know, we're still figuring out, okay, how do we localize these things? Because subtitles were not much of a thing yet, as far as mass-produced film prints go. You know, I can only imagine what it would be like. Do you know who shot or who was, um, the director was for the French version of Mary Widow? I believe it was also Lubitsch. Okay, interesting. It looks like the, the takes must have been shot back to back because sure. everything about them is identical. There's, it's not like a case where there's any like significant difference about mm-hmm. like every single MOS shot is identical. Every single camera setup, movement, the, the cutting is virtually the same. It's, it's really interesting. Maybe they Very had cool. a French, you know, translator there or a consultant, but I'm pretty sure that Lubitsch personally directed the French version of it. I mean, there's so many ways to get into the kind of the lubichness of this film, but it's interesting how much more this film leans on objects and doors and lamps. Interesting side note is that a scene popularly attributed to this film, Billy Wilder mentions the scene where the king comes out and has a sword that is the wrong size. He attributes it to the smiling lieutenant and that, and that UCLA talk. It's decades of people misattributing that scene to this film. But even with that, there is so much here, like the opening scene where you have uh, the introduction of Nikolai, the uh, Maurice character, the rake. Right where you have the the man with the tailoring bill coming, the light outside his apartment is off. Man with the tailoring bill assumes he isn't home and leaves, and then the woman comes in. Uh, you know his mistress or one of his many girls on the side comes in, knocks on the door. The door opens, and only then does the light turn on. And the light is you know a replacement for a night of romance. Once again, he's offloading the work of characterization to doors and objects. It's it's lovely. What a great way to start the movie. Yeah. Well, and then the the montage that happens after, right, where it cuts between, you know, doorbell, the yeah. the doorman opening and coming in saying, you know, and then this commands that are just uh, Maurice yawning um, and the movement between these and then the movement to the bugle after, you know, so much of the film is about like communication and especially even if it's still verbal, like all these different sort of sign systems that are sort of attuning us to like different commands, et cetera, that we all are sort of reading. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way that this opening really establishes the this sort of, in this case, nonverbal vocabulary. But even when the vocabulary becomes verbal, it still is never direct. It's always like these indirect discussions about sex or romance or whatever. The the obvious one that stands out is also the the references to musical instruments, right? That's sort of like a very common one. Um, mm-hmm. But part of what I, I love is when uh, it's a great joke where it's Colbert and uh, Chevalier 
walking through the park and they say, you know, oh, we should have like a duet. And of course, we know that they're referencing going home to go have sex. But then we cut to the home and they actually are like playing a duet. And like, that's actually like a great joke. And I think Mm -hmm. uh, the way that this sort of plays is so fantastic. Obviously, all the references to them eating. But then again, same thing. It cuts to them actually eating. Like he sort of constantly is playing this really, you know, we think it's a double entendre. And of course, it is a double entendre. But he also literalizes it, which is very uh, funny sort of throughout. But those are the moments that stand out for me as like what's already, you know, taking already like a dirty joke and then making it literal is like a really uh, amusing sort of Mm -hmm. uh, approach that he takes throughout this. The metaphor of meals for not just sex, but essentially different, basically different types of women. But this idea of of dinner being this associated with this salaciousness and this young independent sexuality, basically. And then breakfast as this, you know, more Kodishian domestic enterprise. Uh, You have Claudette Colbert, the dinner girl, and then Miriam Hopkins, the breakfast girl. (laughs) Uh, Essentially, you have that very sad line at the end of girls who start with breakfast don't usually stay for supper, which we can do some exegesis on because I think there's a lot there. But of course, you also have that, yeah, that that wonderful song that Claudette and Maurice sing that's entirely about how much better breakfast tastes after lovemaking (laughs) or in the context of lovemaking. You put cheeses in the coffee such temptation in the tea. I get a thrill that sends a chill right through me when you pass the toast to me. Where it's not, you know, breakfast is not necessarily a, you know, a wide, there's not a wider thematic import here. It's just a fun little way to sneak this idea by this, the fact that they're both very sexually satisfied. So it's so multifaceted and really tough to just pin down into a reductive reading. Yeah. And I actually have sort of two points I I wanted to make. Part of what's also interesting about this film and maybe sort of helps to distinguish it from from other Lubitsch films from this period and some of its behaviors that are different is the fact that it's shot by George Folsey, who is the only, this is the only film that is not shot in this period of Lubitsch's by Victor Milner, um, who shoots everything from Love Parade through to Design for Living. And so he shoots uh, Monte Carlo, One Hour with You, Broken Lullaby, Trouble in Paradise, but doesn't shoot this one, which may have to do with the fact that it was shot in in New York, so it's not in Los Angeles. But um, but what's interesting is that Fulci also shot an earlier Chevalier comedy, The Big Pond, one of his big sort of hits uh, for Paramount. So anyway, so that's sort of part of also what's distinct about some of the visual style of this film. But to the songs as well, it's interesting because this is the only Chevalier film, I think, from this period that doesn't really have like a breakout song in the way that like no. most of his other films do. So many of them have, at minimum, they're sort of incorporating what were already standards for him into the film in one way or another, or they're breaking out like a new one. And so in the case of The Big Pond, the big song is um, You've Brought a New Kind of Love to Me, which became so popular that the Marx Brothers um, parody it in their film Monkey Business in 1931, because it's just like so instantly hmm. recognizable to um, to audiences. And it's a great song. But this one is kind of unusual because it doesn't really have like a single number that you might separate from it. It's sort of like all the songs are very fixed in the narrative in a way here. Um, even more so, I mean, Love Me Tonight is often spoken of in this way, but I, I don't think that actually really is true of, of that 
film. There's definitely numbers in that film that are like... Isn't it romantic? Is is a standard, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so Love Me Tonight's a standard. And, and I'm sorry, isn't it romantic also? But like Mimi, for example, is kind of awkwardly... Like that was already a song that Chevalier did. And it's kind of like awkwardly put in. Very, a very obvious jukebox musical moment of that, right? Where it's, okay, how can we possibly shoehorn in? Because it makes absolutely no sense unless you really, yeah. <laughs> really uh, do some backflip. No, it's so weird. Versus in this film where like all of the songs sort of organically rise out of the like actual narrative and are like very context specific but they're great songs I mean like I, I do love these songs and like rewatching it again uh, the other day I was like oh yeah these are like really uh, these are jams like this is a really good musical but it's unusual in that sense um, this might be a good excuse for me to bring up what I think is an interesting aspect of this film which is that this is a musical where none of the three leads can really properly carry it to when Marie Chevalier is the most reliable singer in your film that's a very <laughs> low bar and I get I love Maurice but the man he's no Jeanette McDonald <laughs> yeah with Miriam Hopkins, it doesn't necessarily hurt too much because at this point, we're, we're kind of, this is kind of the beginning of a thematic through line in a lot of Lupich's musicals and even non-musicals, which is this attachment of musical ability with sexual independence, sexual confidence. And in this case, Hopkins, her character, you know, is this, can only play dainty little tunes and has kind of reedy singing voice, which makes sense. But with the case of Claudette Colbert, I think she actually does terrific work in this film, in the dramatic scenes and the comedic scenes. I mean, she's a movie star for a reason she radiates that but her singing voice is also very warbly thin and reedy and it, it is an odd thing where you know like the duet of jazz up your laundry jazz up your laundry just like a melody be happy choose which, aside from being in, in so many ways, we can do a whole episode on Jazz Up Your Lingerie and the, the, the complications behind that scene, and we'll talk about it later. But it's not a well-sung song. <laughs> they don't really perform it well. And yet, and here's the thing that really gets me, and yet the musical fully survives all of that. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. it, it, it's fascinating. And I, I, I tracked a lot of that up to the, you know, just Lubitsch at this point. His sense of rhythm is unparalleled at this point. I think this is the film where I, I kind of feel like he's finally recaptured that silent film rhythm that he had that wasn't quite apparent in something Monte Carlo. You're right. You mentioned earlier that it's, you know, it's a, a troubled production for its performers in many ways. Like it, it seems like they're having fun. They're able to sort of create this real excitement in those songs, even if they, yeah, you're right, sort of sound a little bit off tune. The other thing also with, with Hopkins that I find so interesting about this film. So this was her sort of big debut in many ways. It was not her first film, but it does in many ways seem like the sort of like announcement of her career in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And yet she's against type. Yeah, well, and that, it's, sort of, it's almost like building the type in a way. You know what I mean? Like, that's the part where, like, by the end of the film, she becomes... Yeah, because she becomes the, the type. sort of sexy kind of figure that she is in a lot of the, the early 30s films. And I kind of love that about the film in a way that you mm -hmm. sort of see her... Originally, I, I thought that it was like a transition of a kind, but since it's really her, the beginning of her career really is like this like launching pad for like the kind of roles she'll have in um, Story of Temple Drake or or um, the Mamoulian um, Jekyll and Hyde film or, you know, all these different films. She has a slightly racier kind of style. Um, so I, I kind of love that about the transformation that she undergoes in the film. I mean, speaking of Hopkins, she's going to be one of the most consequential figures at this point in Lubitsch's career. I mean, by most accounts I've read, Generally, feelings on her in Hollywood are mixed. Lubitsch, though, apparently had the utmost confidence in her. And I think that paid off in their two later films together where 
in Trouble in Paradise and especially in Design for Living, she is this archetype of that specific type of pre-code protagonist that, I mean, she's still who we reference, right? Her character in Design for Living is, you know, spoken of in the same breath as like Barbara Stanwyck at her, at her pre-code heights. And in this, it feels like she was cast for the end of her arc and then they built her towards that. It really does help the last 10 minutes of the film, the last five minutes, actually, this film it wraps up spectacularly fast. That she feels completely at home playing this modern jazzy woman who is in full control of her own agency. All five of the sort of main leads, I forget who plays um, her her father, but he also was a great sort of stock actor in, in the 30s, in the early 30s. George Barbier. And even, you know, Ruggles is only in it for maybe five minutes, but but he's so good in those five minutes. Uh, and he sort of makes me want to see more of him. So I, I'm glad when he gets promoted in the later uh, Paramount films to more substantial uh, roles. What really blows me away with this movie, aside from all the stuff we talked about. It feels like a fairy tale. It's almost childish in its production design and Maurice's mugging. And yet the sheer skill and charisma and movie star like magnetism of Maurice and Claudette mean that their romance, we take that seriously. I actually get the adult chemistry between the two of them in a way that I didn't get in Monte Carlo between Jack Buchanan and Jeanette McDonald. I think Buchanan is the weak point there. And in this case, very quickly, I, I think the key scene is Claudette's introduction where she's shown, you know, miming violin and Maurice is mugging at her. But there's this kind of playfulness, this winking knowingness to both performances that tells us, okay, all this kind of goofiness is a facade. This is love at first sight. And then when they're negotiating the bounds of their relationship later, right? When she is basically saying, I'm not staying. I, this is a fling. This is a, I'm just another one of your girls. But he's fully in love, right? He has fallen for her on some deeper level. And there's a sensitivity there and a nuance to their relationship that just floors me every time I watch this. And then the fact that the movie then pivots so that we are allowed to move on from that into his later first enforced arranged relationship with Marion Hopkins' character. And then one that kind of, you know, in its own cartoonish way deepens. This is a very smart film about relationships. I, I think so too. And I think it's also a really subversive film in a lot of ways. And so, you know, many, many of these romantic comedies will still kind of follow like that, like Austinian style of like two characters meet they don't like each other but then in the end they learn to see through the appearances mm -hmm. and and be like oh actually i love you for who you are etc and like that's for example like the style of the shop around the corner which i i often compare to this film because in that film right it's a uh, james stewart and, and margaret sullivan and they uh, you know they they hate each other in person but they love each other through the letters and then at the end they realize oh actually you're the one who's been writing the letter the whole time i actually love you for who mm -hmm. you are etc and i i have to say, I mean, this is a controversial point, perhaps, about this film. And like, I think this is partly why James Harvey describes it as such a cruel film. But I actually kind of love the fact that this film does not end that way. It actually, like Miriam Hopkins literally has to change her appearance. And there's a way in which, you know, that that's the aspect that is so subversive about it, right? That like Chevalier is, is in love with her, but really he's in love with like this appearance that is sort of traveling from character to character. Um, but that's the level that, that he's really plugged in to. And I think that's part of what like is so definitive of the real subversive dimension to the way that Lubitsch details this kind of ruling class society where, you know, there's this like appearance is just so important at all levels of this film. Um, and like that's where all the pageantry really comes in. But even in like the kind of modern components like through jazz, etc., all the ways that he's sort of is signaling this transition from 19th to 20th century politics, there still is this aspect where it really is about like appearances 
forces that matter most. And so I, I love the fact that he sort of undercuts this idea of like the conventional kind of reconciliation between this married couple, like the fact that it still is has this real bite to it. That's, that's totally different, I think, than um, a lot of the other later films that he'll make in the late 30s and early 40s. A little bit of context for the ending. The first half of this film is a romantic comedy between Maurice, a, a lieutenant who falls for a violinist, and then he catches the eye of a young princess. It's convoluted, but point being, he is forced to marry the young princess. And the ending is fascinating because it basically involves the violinist who's this modern, jazzy, independent 30s woman, essentially teaching the young princess, Hopkins, how to be a modern woman in every way. And this involves, you know, the, the song they sing together is literally called Jazz Up Your Laundry. And, you know, that, that's about the song of it. But I don't even know where to start here because there's so many ways to enter this. And it's such an interestingly ambivalent ending. And, you know, you mentioned that it's been under, you know, some criticism. And, you know, we can add William Paul to that in his own way, where I don't think he, he dislikes these musicals based on his book. But he does call the ending in this movie uncomfortable. And he makes a comparison to Trouble in Paradise and Design for Living. This film's ending involves two women from radically different social classes, finding commonality and solidarity as women and women who love the same man. Moreover, the more experienced woman imparts her experience and her wisdom on the on the less experienced women so that she might basically be a good wife for Maurice. What William Paul argues is that this represents a sort of reversion to societal norms, a capitulation. And this is the obviously the reverse of the situation we see at the end of Trouble in Paradise, where the, the rebellious couple goes off to their own adventure or the, the end of Design for Living, where the entire idea of a monogamous couple is tossed away in exchange for a sexless wink-wink threesome. And I don't disagree with William Paul at all in this at all. I think the uh, discomfort is what makes this ending really great. I know that's the oldest canard where what you think is bad, what if good? But I really think that the emotional complexity of this ending, you know, here we have three characters, all of whom are kind of sympathetic in their own way, but especially the Claudette character where she's the, you know, character in the film with, it turns out, the most agency, or at least she gets the final activation, where she gets to basically decide, you know what, this relationship, me being essentially the mistress, even though her relationship with Maurice is fundamentally one of loyal monogamy. The mistress and the wife, the positions have been swapped from what we usually see in stories like this. She is going, okay, out of love and loyalty, I am going to essentially equalize me with this princess. And that also ends on this interesting gender note of, uh, okay, so, you know, Maurice comes in and he can't, uh, there's this lovely bit, of course, right? The comic bit where he can't believe this princess who is so unattracted to him is suddenly this hottie who wears lingerie and plays jazz and smokes cigarettes. He has to go and just ensure that the drink he's drinking is not some sort of poison that is giving him hallucinations. The final beat we have for Maurice is essentially, wow, he's, I'm not attracted to this one person. I'm attracted to this type of woman. It's not about the person. It's about the role you are fulfilling. And that is a deeply troubling idea. I, I don't mean in the sense of, you know, presentism, hindsight, 100 years hence, dare we judge these. I just mean existential. This, this mystic bond between these two people of what we usually think of as love is really chemistry between personality types. So I mean, I, I've gone in a million directions in this, but that's because this ending is, is that complex. It's so interesting. That's my rant, but I love this ending. No, I, I think you're so right. And I think that's where for me, like even though it does end in monogamy, which is maybe where the, the William Paul sort of argument comes in, I, I also don't, it's it's still not quite that though, because like it isn't sort of grounded in, as you say, like, oh, actual like love or affection for each other. And that's where I think it sort of matches with these endings from these other later Lubitsch films, as you're mentioning, like it really contains its own undoing by making the marriage at the end contingent on Miriam Hopkins sort of maintaining the um, the appearance of, of the mistress, playing the role of the mistress within the marriage itself. Mm. And that's the part where, and I mean, it sort of goes back to the fact the 
whole film is structured around, you know, all of these different sort of ways of sort of communicating or signifying to each other different sort of meanings and subversive meanings and double meanings, etc. And so this ending, the way that it concludes is, uh, you know, the, I think I think you're right, like the discomfort is precisely what makes it so, uh, so thrilling. And for me in particular, like, I think this is uh, like, that is where it immediately connects with something like Lady Windermere's Fan or a lot of like the really great uh, mm. Lubitsch films in terms of how they how they understand the ways they detail the sort of social norms of these like upper class societies, etc. I think the, the other part too, which maybe we can like link back, I know you wanted to talk about Raffleson as well. Like I think this is sort of where he becomes kind of interesting too as like when you think about the role that Hopkins has in this as sort mm-hmm. of like analogous to in some ways the kind of existential drama that Al Jolson goes through in The Jazz Singer and the sort of opposition between jazz as symbolic of modernity and sort of traditional music on the other hand um, as like this like sort of past that's going by. And so that collision between those two um, that sort of structures the the drama of the jazz singer, I think also kind of gets repurposed in here in really interesting ways, but mostly through her, not really through Maurice in the same way. That's a great segue into Samson Raffleson, because we are here on the eve of the changing of the guard of Lubitsch's most consistent writer in Berlin and in the silent era of Hollywood. That was Hans Crawley. And what does Hans Crawley do? As we noted, he runs away with Lenny <laughs> and uh, betrays Ernst Lubitsch badly. And that was another actually thing that led to this film having a troubled production is that Lubitsch was very understandably smarting from this significant betrayal. And so what do you do? You find a new writer and uh, he found Samson Rifleson. And this is their second script together, but their first film. Samson was brought on to help write Broken Lullaby. And, you know, we can talk about that later. But this film was written shortly after, but made and released first. It's a fairly fast rush production. It's kind of lucky, though, because this film really contains a lot of Samson's usual ticks and a lot of the kind of Raffles and Touch, we might call it, in a way that I think Broken Lullaby doesn't quite. I think it helps that this is also Lubitsch's like preferred playing field, or at least the one he's best at. And uh, But Samson, he he was a New Yorker playwright, and in the mid-20s, Raffleson writes a little script for a film that would be later known as The Jazz Singer. At that point, due to the Great Depression and certain bad investments, Raffleson is, even with that huge success under his belt, a little underfunded, and he wanted a comfortable life for his family, so he makes himself available to Hollywood, and thus starts his career with Lubitsch. I can get into their writing process, which is as a also someone who's a filmmaker, incredibly inspiring. But do you have any other background on Raffleson before I get into the process, which is, I think, maybe the most interesting part? I don't have too much. I think the, the background you offered is, is good. I think the, the jazz singer component is really where I think it, it links up. Yeah, Jazz Singer, which we might remember from the silent episodes, as a film that Lubitsch came very close to directing, if not for his messy divorce from Warner Brothers. Um, well, that would have been a really interesting change in, in film history had that been true. Oh, yeah. And Lubitsch was actually the one who brought the project to the Warner's attention. So that wow. film would probably not have been made without Lubitsch. Oh, which, man. I mean, I think that Lubitsch's legacy uh, would probably be a little bit more complicated had he directed that movie for some obvious reasons. But you know what? He instigating the project that would become the single most formally significant film in Hollywood history, perhaps, or one of them, ain't bad. The story of Samson Raffleson and Lubitsch is fascinating because they were friends in a, in a fashion. There is an incredible article in the New Yorker called Freundschaft, in which at, at a very old age, in his 80s, Raffleson eulogizes Lubitsch a few, three, three or four decades after his death. It's one of the most touching tributes to friendship I've ever read, especially a friendship wherein the person writing it, that being Samson, felt never fully bloomed like it might have. Samson basically, you know, a lot of the article is him kind of ruminating on moments when he could have opened up to Lubitsch and vice versa, and they never did. 
his writing later about this is our best resource into Lubitsch's creative process, which is fascinating. You know, Lubitsch almost never originated a story. In Freundschaft's Reffelsen writes, I doubt if he ever tried to create a story, a film, even a scene entirely on his own. He had no vanity or illusions about himself. However, he was shrewd enough to cherish writers, <laughs> which is a very nice thing to say. And so they would start, though, with always, almost always, I think to be or not to be might be the sole exception, with a literary source material, right? Opera, a book. But Lubitsch would never even ask his writers to read the source. He would give them basically the elevator pitch, a tiny outline, and they would go from there. He didn't want to be beholden to it, which explains a lot about, in particular, Lady Windermere's fan designed for living, doesn't it? Or even The Merry Widow, where they're, they feel like remixes of the originals more than actual adaptations. And they would then proceed to have a days-long, what seems like an argument, Sam and Lubitsch, where they would essentially walk through each scene, they would play out parts for each other, they would, Lubitsch would say, let's do the scene badly, and then let's learn how to do the scene well. It, it was all dictated, so they had a you know, stenographer there, a secretary, writing all their notes down, and then that would be translated into a written script. And then they would take that and edit that mercilessly, again, verbally. <laughs> and uh, Reffelson said, Lubitsch did need a writer, but he wasn't afraid of a good writer, which Hitchcock, I suspect, was for very complex and obscure reasons. Lubitsch welcomed a good writer. That man had a sense of writing second to none. If Shakespeare had been alive at the time, Lubitsch would have embraced him. And Shakespeare may have even been a little better than he was. And so this kind of process, this this kind of early version of a writer's room, basically, wherein you have two people and later, you know, you had the same L Billy Wilder and in his work with Brackett and Lubitsch you know, later spoke about this. Similar process, right? Where they just talk through the script and then deal with the stenographer's notes later. I find that fascinating. And it also, I think, really goes a long way to explaining why even when Lubitsch doesn't write his films, all his characters sound like Ernst Lubitsch. That's, that's so incredible to me. Actually, reading that as someone who's currently trying to write a script, very inspiring, actually. I think you're so right about the idea of a lot of the adaptations as as remix, I think that's a really great way of putting it. And part of what makes so many of them so so interesting. And like also, I mean, in the case of Lady Windermere's fan, which I, you know, is obviously just extraordinary. And one of those, you know, sort of like that and Tartuffe, it's sort of interesting both of those are, are 1925, but Murnau's Tartuffe as these exercises in taking these very dialogue-heavy plays and turning them into these highly complex silent films. But in the case of Lady Windermere's fan, like really emphasizing these like gestural, like the play on glances in these films. Um, it's really just stunning. But it also shows how he what he sees in the material that isn't just given in the in the dialogue itself. And even kind of like structures how dialogue functions in, in these films too. The thing that stands mm -hmm. out to me and I anytime that I've taught this film or I, I, I talk about it with students is like the fact that even though I mean Maurice is even like speaking to us, right? There's like direct address to the audience at the beginning and the end of the films and yet it's never actually a direct comment it's like they're always never they're never talking about what they actually mean there's always this like indirect or misdirection that's playing on double entendres or playing on you know these this play of meaning that that really makes even its relationship to sound very complex and like differently complex from other great filmmakers from the time but like uh, for me i've always sort of thought about this one in particular as kind of a a starting point or a way of thinking about sound in a very different way than most Hollywood or most most commercial productions are that like leads to you know that comment that um, that Godard makes later in his career about you know it, the films have images and sound but the relationship between them isn't like an obvious one um, and you know really trying to complexify what sound mm. actually means in a in a in a film uh, and a lot of it has to do with the way the dialogue is really uh, we're meant to think about 
the form of the dialogue, you know, or like the sort of disjunction between the form of what they're saying, what they actually mean, and sort of are constantly being asked to think about the dialogue in very, in more rigorous ways than maybe we do in other Hollywood films from the time. There's whole scenes that go by where the entire plot is occurring in the subtext. These films, they live in the pauses between the words as much as in the words often. Yeah, definitely. He gets so much mileage. I mean, the thing about Maurice is that he completely understands this and, but does so in a register that feels incompatible. But isn't somehow I don't understand it. It's it, it's it's a it's a funny magic trick. I wrote here in my notes that uh, in all these films, Maurice is a superhero whose power is that he's the most charming man in the world. So maybe that goes somewhere to explaining it. Are there any instances, especially of the rhythm of the dialogue, that really illustrate this for you? Well, one one that stands out to me, um, I think it's the episode with Kristen Thompson, um, where you use the audio from this uh, to introduce it. You use the dialogue between Ruggles and and Chevalier. Well, I'm a married man. Well, then, get a divorce. Yeah, now, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm very fond of my wife. She's nice, she's good, she's refined. In fact, I, I, I love my wife. And so, you see, if I... Uh, should... Wait a minute, wait a minute. To cut a long story short, you're crazy about another girl. And like that's that's one example where, you know, Ruggles, a lot of Ruggles performances throughout the 30s are characterized by him getting kind of flustered, like he speaks too fast, gets flustered and kind of fails to actually deliver the pivotal lines. But in, in here it works structurally because normally it's meant to be like, oh, he's kind of, you know, a crazy guy. But in, in this case, it also has this like different purpose where like he can't actually admit that, you know, the reason I want us to go to this performance by Claudette Colbert the reason I want to go to this performance is because I want to cheat on my wife. And he refuses to ever actually um, say this. Mm -hmm. Throughout a lot of the duets, I think, are structured this way, um, which is part of what makes them really interesting to watch um, because they're always sort of playing on this understanding between the characters and also between us um, and the characters. But it's never actually brought out into the open. Um, and that that makes them more challenging to uh, watch, but also more interesting to watch in some ways. It is interesting, too, I mean, to kind of loop the postcode stuff in that I think, I mean, it's good that Lubitsch took, you know, three years off directing <laughs> once the code started being enforced. I mean, The Merry Widow was interesting transitional work where it was censored at the print stage. But um, this kind of faculty with inference, with, again, um, letting things live in those pregnant pauses, just characters saying what not what they mean, but winding their way around it. It basically means that he's more suited than most directors to, for example, in To Be or Not To Be, it's never stated that Maria Tura and the Captain Zaletsky are having this affair. It's just so heavily implied that there's no other reading possible. <laughs> and yet there is plausible deniability if we want to be really concrete about it. And again, same thing occurs in Angel where Horton and Marshall are discussing a musical performance that in an opera that starts as a duet and becomes a trio. Isn't that the one where the husband suspects his wife of singing with another man and catches them right in the middle of a beautiful duet he kills him doesn't he well not immediately no sir first he joins him in the most exquisite trio i mean i immediately thought of that when you mentioned the double entendre of the duet here where it's you know he's he's still pulling from the same tricks it's just that he's buried them by the time of angel uh, to to such a point that they're almost fully yeah. obscure it's also sort of interesting because it reminds us that lubitsch ultimately is like a montage artist in a lot of ways um, and like that is sort of what mm -hmm. defines him very distinctly i think compared to like even mamu 
Julian, for example, I know often like Love Me Tonight is often thought about like in the same sort of register as Lubitsch films. Um, but really, like Mamoulian's approach at every level, I think, is is really different. And the things that interest him are very different. And and one of their chief differences mm. is that Lubitsch, I think, ultimately, at the end of the day, is largely based in, in montage. And like, especially you see this at the opening. Mm. The opening is very effective at this and the cutting. I already mentioned this, but the cutting between the doorbell, the doorman, Chevalier yawning and then eventually the bugle outside and sort of establishing this kind of rhythm, but also this like system of communication between all these different levels um, that doesn't actually ever get enunciated directly. But I think it's also true in, right, if montage is about creating meaning between juxtaposition that's never brought out outright, but is, is comes about through the, the collision of these two um, alternating meanings that stand separately, but then come together to create different meaning. Um, I think that's where it sort of gets subsumed into the dialogue itself, uh, which is part of what's so sort of striking to me about this and feels like a continuation of the ideas that animate a lot of his late silent period um, stuff. I'm glad you specifically point out the montage because when I think of someone like John Ford, I think of the great shot. I think of John Wayne in The Quiet Man, surrounded by trees, tiny in the frame with uh, Barry Fitzgerald behind him on the cart. When I think of Ernst Lubitsch, I think of a scene like where Claudette Colbert is playing violin, but I don't think of the shots. I think of the way that the editing rhythm of the film is a counterpoint to the goofiness on display. Maurice is, he's mugging. Maurice is playing the scene for goofy comedy, but the editing is playing the scene for essentially eroticism. The two are falling in love and just cannot wait to get into the bedroom together on screen. And it's the editing and the music and the interplay between those two that sells that. We don't need to be told it. It's just this formal force of nature that I shouldn't say force of nature, but it's this formal tidal wave of kind of subtextual emotion that Lubitsch generates by just the editing rhythm of that scene. It's remarkable. Yeah. And it just goes to show, I mean, like he like both begins in the silent era and like matures in the silent era. And like that is really the aspect that I think also one of the aspects that distinguishes him between um, him and, and Mamoulian. Because Mamoulian really, I mean, he makes a short film in the silent era, but basically... Mm. I mean, what's kind of interesting about Mamoulian maybe is the fact that he is probably, at least in the U.S., like the director of greatest prominence to begin his career in the sound era. And that, I think, informs a lot of the decisions he makes that are very different from what other directors would choose to do. And especially with Lubitsch, because Lubitsch still is really, even in this film, drawing on a lot of those talents that he um, developed through through silent mm -hmm. film language, especially. Yeah. And yeah, and like the opening, I think is the greatest example of that. But I think it plays throughout the, the film as well. And then also that great, I think you already mentioned it, but the sequence of Chevalier running from his bedroom where Miriam Hopkins is now like in a much more modern kind of dress, running back and forth and sort of like in disbelief and like seeing her in different different um, states of undress and doing different things, playing piano and smoking, etc. And, and the fact that that ending can just walk that tonal type road of it being just this goofy, goofy, ringing out the comedy from this. He's like mugging at the camera going, this thing, it's practically like a Charlie Chaplin bit. And although, I mean, Chaplin always laced that with in his later career, uh, sadness and melancholy. And that's what happens here, too. It's not so much melancholy as it is mixed feelings. 
because you're never not aware of the fact that now he's stuck in this cloistered palace and the ending, it deflates itself just enough. Can I can I jump in really quickly with a very brief uh, note about Chevalier and Chaplin since you've, since you've brought it up? When he first comes to Hollywood, of course, he you know wants to meet all these different celebrities. And like, who else would you want to meet in this moment in Hollywood other than Chaplin? Like, of course you want to. And so they go to dinner um, together, I think at one of their houses, I can't remember whose. And uh, at this point, Chaplin's going through a divorce. And he also is like a really intelligent guy. So he wants to talk about the political developments in Europe. He wants to talk about um, the economic crisis in Germany. He wants to talk about, according to this like one account, he wants to talk about like Marxism, etc. And he, so he's talking to, to Chevalier about this and all the Chevalier wants to talk about because he is not a smart man was really only concerned with like, hey, so like, how do I how do I make it in the biz in Hollywood? Um, and it did not uh, it, they did not connect <laughs> at all. And they would see each other from time to time in the future. They're never alone, but always in like a group setting. And Chaplin apparently just really disliked him. Constantly, Chevalier would make these comments about his future marriages or about other things and throughout the remainder of his life, Chaplin was by mm. no means uh, a Chevalier fan. Um. Lubitsch and Chevalier, it seems that they started out on good terms. But by the time of the Merry Window, Lubitsch just had no time for the guy anymore. Didn't really want to work with him. They were no longer socially on good terms. <laughs> Chevalier, I mean, by all accounts, is this kind of slightly dour, prickly personality. It seems that he struggled with depression. He was apparently comically cheap. Apparently, as soon as like the camera stopped rolling, he would just revert to his like very dour, humorless self. And yeah, it, it is so interesting that the man on screen who just seems to have this incredible joy for life. I mean, it's, it's the oldest thing in the book even in his later career like the the way that he i mean i think in many ways i i love gigi the minnelli film and i think he just lights it up in so many ways i, I like many of the performers in that film but but he particularly his later songs like um, i'm glad i'm not young anymore or his duets um i remember it well which is like arguing for me probably the greatest sequence in all of minnelli's films i mean it makes sense why he chose that as the the name of his um autobiography but yeah i think those those sequences are just just stunning I I think it's also probably why like Love in the Afternoon is really the only Billy Wilder film that I, I like. And I think a lot of it, not all of it, but I think part of it has to do with Chevalier and, and his his role in that, which is kind of unusual and bizarre. But um, yeah, I like him quite a bit in that as well. He is terrific in it. Yeah. I really struggled with Love in the Afternoon. I felt that it lacked the rhythm of Lubitsch. I felt that and I also felt that, I mean, this is the oldest play in the book for that movie too. But uh, Gary Cooper is so old. Um, he, he looks like a face on Mount Rushmore compared to like the late 20s Hepburn and he photographs older than Maurice. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. As far as Maurice goes, I've heard, I've read such contradictory things about his involvement with Vichy France. That's one thing where I, I throw up my hands and I do not know what to think about what he was doing in the early 40s. Because I've heard everything from he was a willful collaborator to like his family was being held hostage to he he only performed once. Everyone has a different story. It's it's very it's very fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think part of part of the background. So one one of the biographies that I've, I've read on Chevalier, I think makes what I think is the most convincing point. And this is the part that's maybe hard to appreciate post facto. But the fact that Patin had like a lot of cachet to leverage, um, and like he was well liked by particularly men of of Chevalier's generation. And so like I, I don't think this excuses it at all. And in fact, I think it actually makes it worse in some ways. But like his willingness to go along with it is based on the fact that he continued to admire uh, Patent throughout the, his entire life and even after the war, but especially his like deftness in World War One was part of what made him, you know, uniquely, I think, willing to to sort of go along with and become sort of associated with uh, with that. Like, and this is part of what's sort of contradictory about Chevalier, but also why I love him so much in, in Gigi in some ways, too, is that like Gigi in many ways is also negotiating this kind of 
negative image of Paris in particular, and that being this like the sort of synecdoche for France in general and like French national identity in general. And so like in so many ways, Chevalier also is like the perfect example of that. I mean, many of his most famous songs are just I love Paris, Paris is great, I love Paris, like da da da, whatever. I'm Paris Jatem from Love Parade. But like it's also this very particular idea of what France and Frenchness is relative to like, you know, a a more radical but also critical tradition that also sort of inhabits. I mean, it would be the equivalent of Hatton or Grant or something. Um, Like when Grant becomes president, it's like a different kind of context. But I imagine like it would be similar to the kind of like affection that, you know, these these military Mm. figures who earn a lot of cachet based on like an image of heroism that then makes it possible for, for people to sort of go along. I mean, nothing equivalent in those examples to um, Patan, but I think that's a lot of what animates it. Is there anything else about the Spinal Lieutenant or Chevalier or any stones you feel like we haven't quite turned yet? The elements of pageantry for me, especially this time around, brought back um, Ophuls. And I kind of, I had forgotten that the original setting of this film is in Vienna. And I do think there is this kind of similar mobilization of this like Habsburg myth kind of vision of of like early 20th century Vienna that you see between both of them because both of them also are very willing to use really elongated pauses or the I'm thinking of like the scene in the earrings of Madame De where um, Charles Boyer is moving between opera boxes we see the the sequence of him walking from box to box and it's sort of spread out in a way that mm-hmm. you know most Hollywood films I mean granted earrings of Madame De is not a Hollywood film but most films at that time would cut out that space of him just walking and Ophuls leaves it in and I think you see that also where Lubitsch also leaves in these moments um, that other filmmakers would cut out and I think there is this continuity between them that's quite nice and also their equal sort of affection for this this image of Vienna at this turning point which is where it's kind of interesting with Lubitsch being associated with being like a German filmmaker and like a filmmaker of like the cities in Berlin etc but particularly in his Hollywood films the image of Europe that he's drawing on I think more than anything is this idea of early 20th century Vienna that seems to be really sort of the imagined locus of what Europe was um, in this sort of pre-war era which is an interesting place to draw up Maurice in because he plays an Austrian and yet his first musical numbers refrain is this is not the start of it by any means but it's yet another way that Lubitsch is mashing up various European signifiers to create this kind of European hodgepodge nations even if it's Austria being hodgepodge in this case thank you so much for coming on the show Jonathan this was a lovely episode yeah thank you so much for having me this was great love talking about this film it's so uh, fantastic if people have not seen it they definitely should next week Will Sloan joins us to discuss The Man I Killed also known as Broken Lullaby Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. Riley Cronin was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 